Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, dental legal consultant at Dental Protection based in Brisbane. Welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts produced exclusively for members of Dental Protection. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high quality dental care for your patients. In this edition, Open Disclosure Part 1, what is it and how do I do it? We're going to focus on just that. And to do so, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Dr. Mike Rutherford. Thank you, Mike. Thanks very much, Annaline, and welcome back, colleagues, to another one of our podcasts. Today, I would like to discuss open disclosure and also, in part two, an integral part of this process, which is an expression of regret or apology. Now, most dental practitioners innately understand the basic concept of open disclosure, even though it is generally not discussed at length at dental school, and we may not know the formal definition. It just seems the right thing to do, and it seems like part of our duty of care. But to use an analogy, we all know how to run, even though most of us have never been taught how to run. But when you see the vast array of running styles that different people use, it's obvious that some styles must be more effective and efficient than others. And so similarly, it doesn't hurt to learn about open disclosure so we can be more effective and efficient. Now, the formal definition of open disclosure is the process by which patients and those that support them can be informed of adverse events resulting in harm that arises from the provision of health care. Those of us that work in hospitals and public health clinics are probably well aware of this process as it was required by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare to be a formal structure in all government funded health settings where it is generally a formal process. So what about the vast majority of dental practitioners who are in private practice? Well, even if it's not a formal process, it is still a part of our professional responsibilities. The Dental Board of Australia's Code of Conduct, which is basically our textbook on how to be a professional, requires us to be aware of the principles of open disclosure and references the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare's Open Disclosure Standard of 2003, which is an internationally accepted and recognised framework. So what is open disclosure? Well, first of all, it is a patient and a consumer right. It's also a professional's and an institution's obligation, and it should be a normal part of high-quality care and an expected occurrence following in from an incident or harm to a patient. It is also an essential part of high quality care and part of quality improvement. Now we all understand trying to make good practice better, but sometimes when practice doesn't come up to the standard, the way we can handle adverse outcomes can improve our practice and the, the practice of the institution. So at this stage, I'd just like to run through the principles of open disclosure as discussed in the standard. And the first and most obvious, I guess, is openness and timeliness of communication. 
When things go wrong, we want frank and open discussion of what actually happens. The second is an acknowledgement that we do actually have to acknowledge that the result is not what was expected. It's not what was expected by the practitioner and it's not what was expected by the patient. And the third part, which we'll discuss in part two, is an expression of regret. As early as possible, the patient and any support persons with them should receive an expression of regret for any harm that resulted from the adverse outcome. There should also be a recognition of the reasonable expectations of the patient. It's reasonable for them to be upset. It's reasonable for them to expect or even demand an explanation. And also it's reasonable for them to want to know where you go from here and how will remediation be accomplished. Another important aspect is there should be support for any dental practitioner who is employed or works in a clinic that they feel comfortable and safe in going through the open disclosure process and that they don't fear ridicule or censorship by the practice for acknowledging adverse outcomes. Any investigation of an adverse outcome should integrate risk management and improvement of systems and should work through accepted processes that focus on the management of the risk such that the, uh, the outcome also accords with good governance in that structures can be put in place to protect the possibility of this adverse outcome occurring again if possible. So that protects both the practitioner, the patient, but also the practice or institution itself. Now, importantly, all these investigations and processes should be done while maintaining the confidentiality of the patient. And this can be missed occasionally because in trying to investigate, we necessarily use the patient's details and the treatment they received, but we're still obliged to maintain their confidentiality. Now, these are the broad outlines of how open disclosure works. When we go to the Dental Board of Australia's Code of Conduct, it particularises this for dental treatment. And we're just going to work through what the Code of Conduct has to say about adverse events and open disclosure. And the first is that we should recognise what has happened. Now, this may sound self-evident, but unfortunately, some of the notifications we've received from members are about events where one of the fundamentals is that it wasn't recognised that something was going wrong. An example I could give is that sometimes general dentists are orthodontics, particularly with sequential aligners, where perhaps the diagnosis and the treatment planning uh, has been done by a third party. Occasionally, the practitioner doesn't realise that things aren't proceeding as expected. And sometimes, to make the matter worse, the patient actually recognises this before the dentist does. And this can be problematic. Another example of this is where 
during root treatment or endodontic treatment, there's been a perforation that hasn't been recognized. And then when sodium hypochlorite is introduced, you get in a hypochlorite reaction with its accompanying pain and swelling and all the drama associated with that. And unfortunately, the, the, the crux of it was that the primary incident wasn't recognized. Our second requirement is to act immediately to rectify the pace of the problem. So even though we have a duty to discuss the adverse event with the patient, our first priority is to stabilize the event. And in this respect, we may have to delay for a few minutes or perhaps for longer the explanation to the patient about what has happened while we deal with the immediate. And by acting immediately, if we use the hypochlorite re, uh, example again, that would be the introduction of local anaesthetic or, or uh, sterile saline to dilute the sodium hypochlorite. It might also involve uh, phoning a more senior colleague or an endodontist to seek further advice. And then slightly longer term, it would involve a referral to an endodontist for definitive treatment. Now, once the occasion arises or the opportunity arises, we then have the opportunity to explain to the patient as promptly as fully as possible. And again, using a perforation example, we obviously can't talk about long-term outcomes before there is proper radiographic assessment and, and perhaps assessment by an endodontist. But we can at least talk about the short term, which is, unfortunately, we have a, a, we've had a problem here. Um, there's a communication between the inside of the tooth and surrounding bone. And I'm terribly sorry, but you're going to get swelling and pain here. But we're going to manage this and I'm going to refer you to get the best outcome. Again, we have to acknowledge our patient distress. Sometimes we feel that patients overreact to things that occur, but we always are looking at this from a position of knowledge and understanding what the likely outcomes are. Now, if you have a patient who is anxious about dental treatment generally, and then more anxious because you've just told them that things haven't gone as planned, it's quite reasonable that they can be distressed and we have to acknowledge their right to that. We have to acknowledge that they may be angry or they may be uh, demanding of an answer. And if we can give a, a, a full explanation as soon as possible, that's more likely to calm the situation down. Now, when we go through the open disclosure process and the subsequent investigation, we're obliged to follow any relevant policies. And this could be things like the ADA guidelines on infection control or Australian standard 4815 to do with reprocessing uh, reusable instruments. And when we get into that investigative phase, we have to review the adverse events and we're charged with the obligation of implementing changes to reduce the recurrence, the risk of a recurrence. And again, this is for the good of the patients, the good of the practitioner, and for the, uh, the benefit of the institutional dental practice. Sometimes we have an obligation of reporting adverse events to a relevant authority. And while we've been concentrating on the clinical side, 
Another example is, say, a significant data breach where a patient's or multiple patients' personal details may have been accidentally released to a third party or the public in general. If the data breach reaches the benchmark, there is a requirement for us to report the, the breach to the Australian Privacy Commissioner. And lastly, patients have the right to make a complaint and we have an obligation to uh, assist them in giving information on how they can go about making the complaint. Now, the first level is if a patient is dissatisfied with the adverse outcome or perhaps your explanation or even your management of it, you could suggest that they put their complaint in writing addressed to the practice and you then have an obligation to reply in writing and hopefully this can sort it out. Sometimes a, an explanation, not in the heat of the moment, but when it's in writing and the patient has the opportunity to read it when things are calmer, can help satisfy any concerns they have. If a patient's not happy with this, we also have the obligation to let them know that a complaint can be made through a regulator. In New South Wales, the HCCC, in Queensland, the OHO, but generally going on to a complaint to APRA. So that's a short sort of summary of our obligations with open disclosure. So I hope this makes the process a little clearer and also uh, reminds us of our obligations. So thanks for listening, um, Annalene. Thank you, Mike. That was incredibly helpful. I've just got a couple of questions I wanted to ask you, if I may. Um, so one of the questions we're commonly asked is, what's going to happen then if my patient tells me they're going to sue me or report me for what's happened? Does that impact on my obligation for open disclosure? Um, well, the short answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, uh, to give a bit more prolonged answer, um, no, it doesn't. Um, the, there are far more patients who claim they're going to sue their dentist or their doctor or anyone else than ever do. And similarly, there's far more patients say they're going to take their complaint to a regulator than they actually ever do as well. But in either forum, going through the open disclosure process actually is more likely to put you in a better place. If your patient were to go to a regulator, um, the regulator is going to remind the practitioner perhaps of their duty of care as detailed in the code of conduct to provide open disclosure. So going through that process actually puts you in a better position with the regulator because you've acknowledged your duty of care to provide this service. As far as a legal challenge goes, while it's very uncommon this, that this happens, most times when there's a legal challenge, um, the plaintiff or the patient will seek a report from either a specialist or a senior practitioner to report on the standard of care that was delivered. And if open disclosure wasn't followed, it's far more likely that that expert report would detail your failure in that, in that respect. So it just tends to colour and paint this picture of somebody who's not following their obligations. So I guess, yes, the answer is you're always far better off calling this process than not. 
Thanks, Mike. And just one last question then, just for complete clarity for the people listening. Is open to disclosure something that I only use when a patient has been harmed? Um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, look, the experts in all these procedures is the airline industry. And the airline industry is almost as interested in what they call near misses as they are in actual accidents. accidents because often a near miss is actually an accident that was either averted at, all the, at the last minute or was just lucky it didn't occur. Um, while the vast majority of open disclosure procedures do involve harm to a patient, uh, one, of example, one example where it would be uh, appropriate, where there is no harm, and I think almost all dental practitioners could identify with this, is where somehow uh, Mr. Smith has come in and sat in your chair and then you've looked at the file and you've realised you've either got the wrong Mr. Smith sitting in your chair or the wrong um, patient details that you're looking at. Now, it's tempting for the dental practitioner to think, well, lucky I checked, uh, I've got the right card now, we'll just proceed. So we don't see, we may not see this as a, as a big deal. But Mr. Smith, without that knowledge, if he knows that you're looking at the wrong uh, file and you've just called him Greg instead of George, his mind might just run wild and think, I wonder if I was about to have a tooth out. Or I wonder if this dentist was going to go in and start doing a root filling that I didn't need. So to your patient, this may feel like a far more important problem than the practitioner um, sees it. So this would be a case where a limited but, uh, but a true open disclosure policy or process is worthwhile, even though no harm has been done. So does that answer the question, Emily? It does, Mike. Thank you. And it's an excellent example of when open disclosure can be helpful when there's been no harm. And thank you so much for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Goodbye.